Well, good morning and welcome. My name is Matt Stefan, and I'm one of the pastors here at Menlo Church. And I want to start our time together by saying what an honor it is for me to work on staff here. The staff here are incredible. What a remarkable group of human beings. I love working alongside them. And I want to be presumptuous for a moment in claiming to speak for all of them when I say that we love serving you all. Here in Menlo Park, or my home base in San Mateo, or Mountain View, Saratoga, San Jose, or our online ministry, we love serving you. And wherever you are participating from today, I want you to know this, that you are deeply loved by God. And we are going to be talking about something quite mysterious, actually. But I'm excited that you are here because this mysterious thing that we're going to be talking about is also quite slippery. It's also a little bit mind-bending and a lot life-changing because over the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about grace. We're going to be talking about grace uh, through our Christmas preparation Sunday services uh, and today, I hope that you get a really clear and very deep and quite possibly life-changing definition of what grace could be. But if nothing else in our time together, I hope you come away with the impression that you are deeply loved by this God. Now, as we explore grace, I'm going to be working my way through four misconceptions or perhaps objections about grace. Uh, and through all of them, we are going to learn quite a bit, I sure hope. We're going to find out. But let's jump in and start thinking about uh, misconception number one. And I want to explore it this way by reviewing my academic history. From the fall of 2009... All the way until the, uh, from the fall of the year 2000 to the winter of 2009, across two degrees and one gap year, I turned in every project and every assignment late. It's only a slight exaggeration. And every time I would ask for the professor, I would go to them and say, could I get a little bit of grace? And they would say, no. Nah. Can't get any grace from us on this. And I thought because it was a Christian institution, they were each Christian institutions, that maybe they would understand grace. But over time, I came to realize that grace does not mean low standards. Just because God loves all of us does not mean that his standards are low. And this is misconception number one, that grace might mean low standards. But if it doesn't mean low standards, what does grace mean? And I thought we might start to get at that by understanding the history of the word grace. Now, it is sometimes suggested that grace is the most unique thing about Christianity. And I think that that's true, actually, that the idea that there is a God, he's alive and he's holy, but that he loves you and he is in your corner and takes a gracious stance towards you, that is quite unique and definitely needed in our world. And that's a very important thing about following Jesus to understand that particular bit. But we did not invent the word grace. Grace is very unique about Christianity, but we didn't invent the word grace. And so when Jesus would walk around Palestine and share about the grace and truth of his message, people understood the word that he was saying. And when Paul walked around Athens and talked about God's grace for all nations, people understood the word. The Greek word that means grace is the word charis. And charis was a very common word in the ancient world. A charis was something that you would give to someone if you were pursuing from them a political or economic favor. And it was a quite calculating thing that you, were, you would do if you were going to offer a charis to someone. In fact, you would never offer a charis to someone who could not do something for you. You were only ever offering a charis when it was politically or economically expedient. 
And so for Jesus to walk around saying that his chorus was not just for the powerful or his chorus was not just for people from whom he wanted a favor. It was not just for people that he found to be economically or politically expedient that his gift was for all people. Well, this was a scandalous and confusing thing. And this word chorus in the Bible, uh, it meant gift. This was a word that all people were familiar with. It was a system of gift exchange, of political favor, of economic exchange that was built around the idea of giving a gift from someone to someone. If you gave a gift to someone, they would then owe you a debt. And when Jesus said, there is no debt, my gift is free, this was wildly confusing to people. Uh, and so as we explore the idea of this word charis, we find that we could translate it as grace or we could translate it as gift. In the Bible, grace means gift. We're going to be talking about for the next four weeks the gift that God has for each and every one of you. And it's important to keep in our mind this word charis could mean grace, could mean gift. Grace means gift. And I want to suggest that if we take a look at all of the passages in the Bible that are well known for being about grace, they open up to us in a new way if we translate this word charis as gift instead of grace. Let's take a few examples. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, a very well-known passage about grace, but we're going to translate that word gift instead. For it is by the gift that you have been saved through faith. It is not from yourselves it is the gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. Or Romans chapter 11, verse 6. And if by the gift we are saved, then it cannot be based on our works. If it were, the gift would no longer be a gift. And maybe the most well-known passage about grace in the entire Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Here Paul is talking about a suffering in his life, and we don't know what it is. But we do know that it was very important to Paul and it was also very painful. And about grace, he wrote this. Again, we're translating it as gift and not grace. Paul said, three times I pleaded with God to take away my suffering. But God said to me, my gift is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. My gift is sufficient for you. What a remarkable statement. We're going to meditate on this some today, that whatever our needs, whatever our pain, whatever our ambition in life, the gift will be sufficient. So misconception number one, that grace somehow means low standards, turns out to not be true at all. It's not that the standards are low, it's that God's generosity is so extreme and the gift so powerful that it is offered to all of us. And that it is sufficient to meet any need in our life. Quite remarkable indeed. Now, misconception number two, we might word it this way. We've come to the conclusion that you or someone you know is ineligible for the gift. And here I want to explore misconception number two by talking about someone that I read about on the internet. This person's name was Jeff. And Jeff was in prison. He had actually committed some crimes that were quite unspeakable, done some things that were quite horrific. 
And he was serving multiple life sentences. And his uh, crimes were so gruesome, in fact, that it drew some national attention. And he was granted an interview with a very famous reporter. And this famous reporter asked him, what is it that you really want? And Jeff thought about it for a moment and said, I think what I'm really searching for is inner peace. And a woman watching this interview thought to herself, well, I know where you could get some inner peace. And she took it upon herself to mail a Bible to this man, Jeff, in prison. And Jeff read the Bible and he thought about it quite a bit. And he was very curious about the Jesus that he was reading about. And so he asked for more literature and more information about this Jesus. And in April of 1994, Jeffrey Dahmer surrendered his life to Jesus and asked to be baptized. And the pastor who said yes to actually baptizing Jeffrey Dahmer has fielded decades of questions about the sincerity of this conversion. Was Jeffrey Dahmer actually remorseful and actually sincere in converting to a follower of Jesus? And this pastor, Roy Ratcliffe, wrote in his autobiography that it is not our job to judge people by their past deeds. That's not what grace is about. And this pastor wrote that in the several months that he spent with Jeffrey Dahmer, he found Jeff to be quite remorseful. Jeff seemed to know that he was sick, seemed to know that he needed help, and was searching for a way to make amends. And this pastor wrote that uh, after Jeffrey was baptized, actually quite a remarkable change came over him, that he was determined to be a model prisoner But this pastor, Roy Ratcliffe, said actually the most remarkable change about Jeffrey Dahmer is the way that Jeff felt about himself. You see, before he was baptized, he thought that he probably should take his own life. That serving these multiple life sentences was too good of an outcome for him, that he deserved something much worse. But after he was baptized, he found within himself the desire to live and instead make amends. Now, you might think that the scandal of God's gift, the scandal of grace, is that even someone like Jeffrey Dahmer might be eligible for it. But actually, the scandal is that in 1994, across pulpits and magazine articles and letters written to that pastor and to the prison, people expressed great disbelief that someone like Jeffrey Dahmer could become uh, a sincere follower of Jesus. The scandal was that people doubted what seemed to be uh, a genuinely sincere conversion. And I think the problem here stems not from the gravity of the crimes in humanity, but from a misunderstanding about the magnitude of grace. And it's fascinating to me that 30 years later, we're having the same conversation due to a Netflix miniseries called Dahmer. And online, there's all kinds of interesting conversations about does this television show take too sympathetic of a view of a real monster like Jeffrey Dahmer? And it is depicting a view of the grace of God as too small. As if there was something a human being could do that is so big that the grace could not overcome it. But the promise of God is that grace is gargantuan. It is the most life-changing thing in all of reality. The gift is sufficient, whatever our crimes may be. And here I think it's perhaps helpful to have a definition of grace. So I propose this definition right here. Grace is that God is going to do something for me that I do not deserve and cannot do for myself. Grace is going to, God is going to do something for me that I don't deserve and I cannot earn. 
And if we think about all the things that God has done for us, this definition becomes quite striking. That God has forgiven me in a way that I don't deserve and cannot earn. That he loves me in a way that I don't deserve and can't earn. That he's present to me in a way that I don't deserve, that I could never earn. And this is what we're celebrating at Christmas. This right here in one sentence is the plot of Christmas. Jesus is present to us in a way that we don't deserve and can't earn. And in this series, when we talk about the gift, that is what we mean, that Jesus has been present to us in a way that we don't deserve and can't earn. His presence is a gift to us. That is the gift. And we're learning that the gift is sufficient. And at Christmas, we remember that we have been given the presence of Jesus in a way we don't deserve and can't earn. So when we return to this misconception that somehow you, me, or someone else could be ruled ineligible for the gift, it comes into a new light. See, we're eligible for the gift not because we deserve it, we, we don't. We're eligible for the gift not because we've earned it, we could never earn it. We're eligible for the gift because the gift giver loves us. And intends to show up in our lives in ways that we don't deserve and cannot earn. And I think this last bit of the definition especially rubs us the wrong way here in the Bay Area. See, it's troublesome to us to have something in our life that we could never earn because here in the Bay Area, we actually prefer a world where we earn it. And this is misconception number three, but it's really more of an objection. See, we just simply prefer earning it. In fact, earning it for a lot of us has worked out really well. We prefer an environment where we are expected to earn it, and we're quite proud of the things that we have earned. Last month, I was in Tacoma for a denominational meetup in the process of my ordination, and I made a new friend. My friend Chris is the executive pastor at First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu. What a jerk. And he told me that uh, before he was a pastor, he was actually a lawyer here in the Bay Area. He lived in Belmont and for 10 years was a corporate lawyer. He had felt there was a lifelong call on his life to become a pastor, and he was hiding out. He was running away from that particular calling and instead being a lawyer here in the Bay Area. And in the process of exploring what it might be like to become a pastor, he had a mentor that told him, Chris, you're not going to be able to understand grace for three reasons. One, you grew up in a family that thinks of itself as pulling itself up by the bootstraps. Your parents worked so hard and it worked out for them. Two, Chris, you went to a church that emphasized earning it. They might talk about grace, but in practice, you had to work really hard. And then maybe if you were lucky, you could find yourself in the presence of God. And three, he said, Chris, you were successful. And these three things are going to make it very hard for you to understand and receive grace. That you came from a bootstrap family, that you went to a church that emphasized earning it, and that you were successful, that's going to make it really hard for you to understand and receive grace. And my friend shared that part of his story was thinking about this statement from a mentor for like a decade. It took him 10 years to digest what was being said to him there. Now, Tim Keller, who I think maybe has the best claim to be America's pastor, once said this, we need grace when we fail, but we need it even more when we succeed. Why is that? It's a real simple spiritual truth. Our earthly successes blind us to our spiritual need. 
Mary, when she learns that she's pregnant with someone who's going to be called Jesus, whose kingdom will never end, she sings a beautiful song in Luke chapter 1. And one line of that song we should find deeply disturbing or at least troublesome in our spirit. She sang this as a song. I, uh, Luke chapter 1 verse 52, singing about her future son. He has brought down the rulers from their thrones, but has exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. See, focusing our lives on what we could earn leaves us hungry. Building our lives around material gain leaves us hungry. And having two small children, my daughter is seven, my son is five, this is actually a lesson. Being a parent is a lesson in exactly this. You see, every holiday break, we let our kids, instead of eating something healthy for breakfast, we allow them to have cereal, delicious sugary cereal. And they love this. They talk about it year round. They say, I can't wait till the next holiday comes around because I will then get to eat cereal. But 40 minutes after the bowl of cereal, they are hungry again. Human beings have a tendency to feast on what won't fill us. What does it mean? For us to be filled up? What does it mean for our souls to be satiated? What are we really looking for? It means that we receive self-worth and well-being. That's what every human being is hungry for. And we expect to receive worth and well-being from something that could never deliver it. We attach our worth and well-being to things that are not sufficient to deliver them. Hard work and success and having our material needs met, they might be necessary to achieve worth and well-being. They might be necessary for human thriving, but they are insufficient ultimately to deliver it. But there is a promise here before us on every page of the Bible that the gift will be sufficient. And one way we deceive ourselves around this is to say, the people whose net worth is just a little bit above mine, they have that problem. My tax bracket and below, we don't face the issue of wrongly expecting our worth and well-being from our material gain. But the truth is that this is an American problem. You see, this weekend we are all undergoing a transformation. Last week we were all talking about what we were grateful for, and this week we're talking about how we want more. And that is ultimately what the Christmas spirit is in our world. This is an American problem that we think more will be sufficient for us. But I also wonder if it is a uniquely Bay Area problem. And as I read reports about how 120,000 tech workers have been laid off over the last couple of months, I can't help but wonder if there's somebody here that is hungry for self-worth and worried about their well-being. And when I think about maybe those people being here, I think about times that I have wrongly attached my worth and well-being to an accolade or an achievement or maybe a job. And I think about how good it felt to wake up to the idea that Jesus' presence is what is ultimately sufficient to deliver worth and well-being. That in the moment where the other things reveal themselves to be insufficient to deliver worth and well-being, I can just remember, oh yeah, Jesus loves me in a way that I don't deserve and could never earn. That the gift is sufficient. 
And if the gift is as good and sufficient as the apostle Paul said, then we just have to marvel. What kind of being is it? Takes something so good and so powerful and gives it away to everyone for free. What kind of God is this? And as we survey scripture, thinking about gift-giving language, it turns out that gift-giving language is all over the Bible. The most well-known passage in all of the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave, gift-giving language right here, that he gave his only son. See, this is a deeply Christmas passage. The plot of Christmas all in one sentence, that God loved you so he gave a gift, the gift of his son's presence into your life. And this reveals the character of God, that one of the fundamental things about God in the Bible is that he is a generous gift giver. Another Christmas passage, Isaiah chapter 9, we read it earlier, for unto us a child is born, a son is given, gift language. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the God who gives. This is the God who has a gift for you because you are deeply loved in ways that you don't deserve. In ways that I could never earn. That's how God loves us. And if we could live right here, from the foundation that God is good, that he intends good things for you, that he has a gift for you, and the gift would be sufficient to anything that you could face. Well, that would really be quite life-changing for us. But we have a tendency to live from a different place, where the world is not so good, where I have to take what is mine, I have to get as much as I could possibly earn, and I'm always hungry because it is insufficient. We have been spiritually formed in such a way that we prefer the world where we have to earn it. And we must undergo a counter-formation to learn to live in the world where we are loved in a way that we don't deserve and cannot earn. And that God has a gift for us that will be sufficient to all things that we could face. That his presence is what is up to the task of seeing us through life. That Jesus is the only one worth entrusting my worth and well-being to. And there's maybe one final objection as we meditate on the goodness of God and his grace for us. We might say it like this. If God is so good, then why are things so hard? And we really have to sit with this one at Christmas time. You see, for some people, Christmas time means a lot of connection and a lot of joy. But for some of us, this Christmas time can mean uh, disconnection or loneliness or maybe even despair. There can be a lot of pain around the holidays. As I've emerged from the pandemic in my personal life, I've just been sitting with a lot of really simple truths. That Jesus loves me. That, that I'm just a sinner That Jesus called me to love him and love other people. That life could really be that simple. And I've been sitting with these things as I've digested my experience over the last three years. I've shared some of the hardships in my personal life from this pulpit, sometimes online. I shared with you all that in March 2020, my family was actually quite ill with COVID. And there were a few days where I felt like, if this was the worst, I'll probably be okay. But if this is just the beginning, I really might be in trouble. And I went from being a moderately healthy 38-year-old to somebody who was really worried about 
how this was going to turn out. I thought about my son. He was only two at the time. And I thought about what if something happens to me? Who will raise him up to be a good human being? So I wrote down 14 things that I wanted him to know about being a good human being in case something happened to me. And then those nights where I felt so sick, what I found was Jesus was with me. That his presence was sufficient to see me through those really scary moments. And then in 2021, uh, my daughter, Margot and I, we went through something that can only be described as online kindergarten. And I sat next to her for seven months every weekday, and we went through hours of working through the kindergarten material across a computer screen. And somehow that was actually worse than our big case of COVID. Online kindergarten was the worst. It was so awful. And yet as I went through the grind of online kindergarten and I learned to pray my way through it, what I found was right there in my daughter's bedroom as we looked at the TV monitor and her kindergarten teacher there, Jesus was also there with us. And in a real genuine way, if Jesus can see me through online kindergarten, there is nothing that he will be insufficient for. And then maybe like some of you all, for me uh, and my wife, the pandemic was hard on our marriage. And my wife is a psychologist, and she wrote her dissertation in part on stress-related growth. And this was about three years of a heavy helping of stress-related growth in our marriage. And when it's hard, when it hurts in our relationships, and when it hurts in our bodies, and when it hurts in our families, and when it hurts in our career, we can find that Jesus' presence really is up to the task of seeing us through whatever trouble we may face. And that's why we have to sing at Christmas time. That's why we have to celebrate this time of year. Because God has come to us in a way that we don't deserve and we can't earn. He loves us in a way that we don't deserve and we cannot earn. And his presence with us has been given to us as a gift. A gift so powerful that it could see us through any circumstance that we could ever face this is why we're gathering and why we are singing on a day like this. We've been given a gift, and the gift is sufficient. And the gift is grace. The grace of Jesus' presence with us in ways we don't deserve, we don't earn. And we've got to talk about it at Christmas because Christmas is about grace. This is the time of year where we remember we might not be faithful in our waiting, but Jesus is faithful in his arriving. And that his presence is going to be enough for us. So I want to offer you some ways to meditate on grace over the next four weeks. Next week, we're going to be talking about the two words that we hate the most in the Bay Area. And I want to confess now, I am very bad at the thing that we're going to talk about next week. I'm going to suggest to us next week that we need to slow down the pace of our lives. Because if we do, we will find that not only does God come to us at Christmas in ways that we can't deserve and don't earn, he comes to us in every moment in ways that we don't deserve and cannot earn. And if you hear me saying that if you slow down the pace of your life, then you can experience every moment as Christmas time. That is exactly what I'm saying. And you need to come next week and hear about how we're going to do that. But I think that it's going to be really difficult for us to slow down and be mindful of the presence 
of Jesus given to us as a gift this Christmas time. It's going to take a lot of intentionality for us to slow down. So we put together all kinds of resources, and I hope that as soon as this service is over, that you're going to go to menlo.church forward slash advent and find all kinds of things to read and to watch as we think about slowing our lives down and finding the presence of Jesus with us in every moment. We got 10 essential things that you have to do to experience a slow Christmas. I got eight prayers for you that you can pray when you're in traffic or waiting in line or doing something that you hate doing. You can pray your way through these busy seasons in a way that slows you down and opens you up to the presence of God. That is my hope for you. One of these is something that we call Menlo Meditations. It's a three to five minute podcast. Weekdays dropped at 5 a.m. You can slow down your mind. You can slow down your breathing. You can slow down your body and set your mind upon Jesus for an entire day just in those couple of minutes. Really powerful stuff. I hope you'll check it out. It's gonna take a lot of work and intentionality for us to slow our lives down. But as I've learned about slowing my life down, I've come to believe that Jesus is calling us to walk slowly through this Christmas season so that we can learn about his gracious presence with us in new and life-changing ways. That's my hope for you over the next couple of weeks. Let me pray for you. Jesus, thank you that you are so generous to us, that you come to us in ways that we don't deserve and cannot earn. God, that you know us, that you love us. God, that you intend good things for us because you are a good gift giver. Lord, so we surrender ourselves to be counterformed. God, would you remove us from the world where we love earning it and what we can earn? And would you make us home, native, comfortable in a world where we are just receiving it as a gift? that you are present to us, that you love us in a way that we don't deserve and cannot earn. We love you, Jesus, and we put our lives in your hands. Amen.